Good evening. It's, it's a privilege to stand here and, and talk about this. Um, we've done it a number of times now. I was trying to, trying to recollect how many times we've given this talk, and I'm thinking we're up to about, I don't know, four or five times. Um, so you're getting the polished version, not the rough version. Um, if you could turn in your Bibles to Romans 1, I've got a section of Scripture here I want to read to kind of get us started thinking about the topic this evening. <clears throat> it's a very familiar passage, um, and it's often used when talking about this subject, but I think it's good to remind ourselves anyway. Starting at verse 18, I'm reading this in New King James. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So, especially verse 20, I want to, I want to focus on that particular verse. Um, he's, he's talking about God's wrath, and in verse 20, he's talking about the invisible attributes or the invisible things, I believe the King James says, are clearly seen, um, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So we are the things that are made. We can see creation, and we can, in a sense, see the attributes of God. This morning, and maybe this afternoon, I think there was probably a lot of people on hikes and uh, walks and drives, this afternoon, looking at the beautiful leaves, well, the beautiful leaves, they're not useful. Um, they're just leaves that are dying. They're useless at this point. But what does that show us about God? I think it maybe shows us that God loves beauty. He loves beautiful things. He's a creative God. He can, he can paint with a brush better than any artist. So that, those are a few of the things there. So... <clears throat> um, would I be able to get a cup of water? If somebody could get me a cup or a bottle of water, that'd be great. So, moving on to the topic here. Um, I think all of us probably have times of doubt. Some of us more than others. For myself, I went through a period in my late teens, early 20s, um, where I was doubting. I was like, you know, are, do we have everything wrong? Does God actually exist? And... I don't think that I was ever at the point where I was ready to throw away my faith, but I was maybe teetering, tottering, heading down the wrong direction, and thankfully uh, turned away from that. And part of that was I read writings of people of faith who pointed out that we believe in God, we have faith in God, but it's not a blind faith. There is evidence that points toward God, and that was very helpful for me, and that's kind of what we'll be talking about this evening. So, <clears throat> there's one area of apologetics 
or evidence of her God that's called the anthropic principle. I'm not sure if you all have heard of that. But the anthropic principle is the principle that the earth and even the entire universe are specifically designed for life. Um, and some scientists would say maybe that it's almost like the universe knew we were coming. Everything has been so fine-tuned. And I'm, I'll just touch on a few things this evening. We don't have the time, and I don't think you all have the patience to, to listen to everything. Thank you. So we'll look at a few of these things. Um, you know, even the laws of physics and chemistry seem tuned to allow life. The, the probability that things would work out, everything would work out just like it has been is so astronomical, you can barely calculate it. So I want to start with, first of all, kind of zoom in on something really, really small and just kind of start zooming out, looking at bigger and bigger things um, that apply to this anthropic principle. So, but, but before I get started, I want to read uh, a verse from Isaiah. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. It says here he formed it to be inhabited. So there is the anthropic principle. God formed the universe, formed the earth to be inhabited. The first thing I want to look at is the water molecule. And water is one of the most common substances on Earth, most of the Earth's surface is covered by water, and most of us probably don't think much about the water molecule and how it's structured and, and what that means. But something that small, and I think it's interesting that Jesus said that he's the water of life. Water is so essential to life, but the water of life is even more essential. So first of all, let's look at some of the chemical properties of water, and I'll try to keep this for the layman and not, not too uh, complicated. But you have to first understand that water is a polar molecule. Well, what does that mean? A polar molecule is a molecule where one part of the molecule has a slight charge than the other side. And that has to do with the way the water molecule is structured. It's H2O, so two hydrogens, one oxygen. Um, oxygen um, has a really strong pull on electrons. I think it's called electronegativity. If you've uh, taken John Ralph's chemistry class, you know about electronegativity. Um, and so it pulls electrons toward the oxygen, which is in the center. And what that means is the hydrogens have a slight positive charge, and the, elect and the oxygen, who's pulling the electrons toward it, have a slight negative charge. That means it's, it, can, it can attract other water molecules. So that's polarity. So what that allows water to do is it allows it to form something called hydrogen bonds. That's a bond between the positive hydrogen and the negative oxygen. It, it allows water molecules to bond to each other. Now why is that important? Well, almost all of the interesting properties of water have to do with that. Um, it causes water to have a much higher boiling point than most other similar compounds. So on the periodic table you have oxygen and below that you have sulfur, um, which is hydrogen sulfide. If you, well, if you would take sulfur and bond two hydrogens to it, just like if you bond two hydrogens to oxygen to make water, you have hydrogen sulfide. And normally we would expect hydrogen sulfide to have a, uh, to have a higher boiling point than water, but it's actually the opposite case, and that's because of hydrogen bonds. Well, why is that important? Um, the reason most, most compounds um, all around us in creation, they're either gases or 
solids. There are very few liquids. Um, petroleum is one of the few liquids. And of course, that's obviously not very conducive to life. Um, and so water is, you can find water in its solid, liquid, and gaseous form on the surface of the earth. That has to do with hydrogen bonds. Another reason that hydrogen bonds are important is because most substances, when you go from a liquid to a solid, they contract, they get smaller. That means they get denser. So if you would take alcohol, for instance, and you would get a solid cube of alcohol, which I think you have to cool alcohol to something like, I don't know if it's negative 80 degrees Celsius or something, it's really, really cold. But if you would get a solid block of alcohol and put it in liquid alcohol, what would happen? Well, we, we're used to frozen things floating on liquid things, but in this case, the opposite would happen. It would actually drop to the bottom. So water is one of very few substances where when it freezes, it actually expands. Very few things do that. Let's, like, well, who cares? Uh, <laughs> except for an answer on the chemistry test. Well, it's very important because if it expands, that means it's less dense and that means it floats. That helps our ice to float in our drinks, but it also helps ice to float on top of oceans and ponds and lakes instead of falling to the bottom. So why is that important? Well, if we have a lake up in Canada, let's say, it's the middle of winter, and the top freezes, if it was more dense, if ice was more dense, it would fall to the bottom, then the top would freeze again, it would fall to the bottom, and basically the pond or the lake would freeze from the bottom to the top, killing all life in that pond, except for maybe microorganisms. Um, and but instead, what happens is the ice stays on the top. It creates an insulating layer, which allows life underneath to exist. So that's just a small thing that has to do with hydrogen bonds. It wouldn't be for hydrogen bonds. When it would freeze, it would get smaller and would sink to the bottom. Okay. Another thing is that those hydrogen bonds hold water molecules really tightly together, which means it takes a lot of heat to heat up water. Um, that's why they say a watch pot never boils, because it takes so long to get all that heat into that water to get it to boil. Um, the reason that's important is because it helps water absorb a lot of heat without warming up too much. So you can take um, a certain amount of heat, dump it into a bunch of water, and it just raises a couple degrees. You take that same amount of heat, dump it into sand or a metal, and it would just raise incredibly much. So what that allows water to do is, like I said earlier, water covers 70% of the Earth's surface. It allows it to absorb heat um, without increasing the temperature too much. So then that water can then, you know, during the summer, it, it keeps absorbing, absorbing heat from the sun. It doesn't heat up that much. And then, which helps to moderate the heat or the, the temperature of areas around lakes and oceans, and then during the winter, it releases that heat to keep those areas warmer. If it would not be for the fact that water absorbs huge amounts of heat, what would happen is it would just get really, really hot during the summer and then freezing cold at winter. But it kind of helps to, it's kind of a buffer. It helps to absorb some of that heat so it doesn't get too hot, and then it releases that heat to keep it from getting too cold. Water also helps to carry huge amounts of heat through the oceans. 
Uh, many of you are probably familiar with the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream is called that because the water originates in the Gulf of Mecca, which has a lot of really warm water. And that water comes up the East Coast, goes over, and then kind of dumps that heat into the atmosphere up around uh, the British Isles, up in that area in Western Europe. And it, it's interesting, if you look at a globe or a map, and you see where London is, London is about the same latitude as Calgary, Alberta. Um, London, it doesn't, really, it doesn't really get that cold. They don't get that much snow. Um, it doesn't get that hot during the summer. And I've never been to Calgary, but I think it's an icebox in the winter, and it's an oven during the summer. Um, that's because that, that heat is being carried up toward, the, um, up toward the poles, which keeps the British Isles kind of at a moderate temperature during the winter, and then also that water helps keep it from getting too hot uh, during the summer. So those are just a few things that water does. And that, that circulation of heat is extremely important in keeping, you know, we, uh, 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 if you've ever been to the tropics, it seems really, really hot. If you go to the poles, well, I've never been to the poles, but if you go to Canada, it seems really cold. But if it would not be for the circulation of that heat moving between the tropics to the poles and then cold water goes from the poles down to the tropics, um, our planet would be not, not uninhabitable, but pretty close to it. That all has to do with that little water molecule and those little differences of charge there. And so uh, the question is, you know, if all these properties, what makes more sense? That it happened by chance or that it was designed by a creator? Creation makes sense. Now moving on to looking at the earth. We're kind of we zoomed in at the water molecule. We're zooming out. We're looking at the earth as a whole and looking at what makes the earth um, suitable for life, what makes it habitable. Well, for one, it's the right distance from the sun. Um, if it was too close, it would be too hot, quite obviously. If it was too far away, it would be too cold. But it's at the right point. It's sometimes called the, uh, the Goldilocks zone. You know, uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, um, Earth is in the Goldilocks zone. It's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's just right. Now, there is a misconception that if the Earth was just a couple miles closer to the sun, it would be blistering hot. If it was a couple miles too far away, it would be too cold. That's not the case. I think it varies in its orbit by several million miles um, from closest to furthest away. One thing that's interesting, at least to me, is that during, the, um, during our winter, uh, winter in the northern hemisphere is actually when it's at its closest point to the sun. So the, the seasons are actually caused by the tilt of the earth, not by our distance from the sun. Okay, um, so talking about the distance. Now the next thing here is talking about the length of day. Um, we know the length of day of all the different planets in the solar system. The one that has the length of day that's closest to ours is Mars. I think it's uh, 24 hours and... 40 minutes or 45 minutes or something. Is that right, John Ralph? You don't know? Okay. Something like that. It's a little bit over 24 hours. But there are some planets that have days that are more like 240 days, uh, Earth days, like Venus is that. Um, and so that, that change, that rotation from light to dark and back again, it allows us to, to get warmed up, but we're not sitting there in the hot sun all day long. We get a chance to cool off, but it doesn't get too cold. We go back out, we get warmed up by the sun, 
there's that, that length of day is very important. Okay, something that we don't maybe think about so much is our magnetic field. Um, how many of you have seen Northern Lights? Seen the Northern Lights? Okay, a few of you. Um, I was up on top of Reddish Knob. It was over a decade ago. Just happened to be up there with some youth for, for no real good reason, probably. And I saw something in the northern sky, and I was like, what is that? It's this red glow, and realized it was the northern lights. I don't think I've seen them since then, but I did see them that time. So uh, the northern lights are caused by our Earth's magnetic field, but that's not what I want to talk about. Um, the magnetic field is very important. Our sun is constantly giving off solar radiation, so uh, visible light, uh, infrared light, and ultraviolet light, and all these different types of light. But it's also giving off lots of particles, charged particles. Some of these are dangerous. If we would be exposed to too much of those, they could cause cancer and uh, could really cause problems. But we have a magnetic field that, because they're charged, they're deflected by the magnetic field. So these charged particles come from the sun, they come towards the magnetic field, and they just deflect around the magnetic field. So the magnetic field protects us from all these different uh, dangerous types of, of particles from the sun. Now, um, there are a few of the other planets that have magnetic fields, but I don't believe any of the inner planets, so Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, the only one that really has much of a magnetic field is Earth. Mars has basically no magnetic field whatsoever, um, very, very little magnetic field, and what they believe happened, and it's kind of hard to know because we weren't there, but scientists believe that um, Mars had liquid water on the surface. Seems like there's evidence that that used to be the case. And what they think maybe happened was all this, all these charged particles from the sun slowly stripped away the Earth's, uh, Mars's atmosphere, which allowed the water to kind of boil away and disappear. Um, but because of those, because of the magnetic field, those particles can't do that. So we're protected from the dangerous particles from the sun by the magnetic field. Okay. Um, another thing is talking about the atmosphere. So obviously there's oxygen in the atmosphere. We, we know that. If we don't have oxygen, we suffocate. Um, but most of the atmosphere is unreactive nitrogen. It's about uh, roughly 78% to 80% of the atmosphere is nitrogen. And it's completely unreactive. We breathe it in. It doesn't do anything. We breathe it back out. Um, so why is there nitrogen in the atmosphere if we can't even use it? It's just, it's filler. <laughs> um, well, the reason is, I believe God designed it, that if you have 100% oxygen in the atmosphere, it makes things burn incredibly quickly. Just a slight smoldering um, a slight spark will, will ignite a fire under 100% oxygen. But 20% oxygen is about right. Um, so there again, I think that's more evidence of, of a creator. There again, we're kind of in the Goldilocks zone. Not too much, not too little, just right. Okay, um, ozone. Years ago, there was this big to-do about there was holes in the ozone layer down over Antarctica. And uh, the good news is that the holes are closing seems like that's getting better. But what is ozone? What does it do? What's the point of ozone? So ozone, um, 
the oxygen we breathe is O2. It's two oxygen atoms bonded into a molecule. Ozone is O3. It's three oxygen atoms. And you would think, well, you know, you add that one oxygen, it's probably basically the same as oxygen. It's, it's all oxygen. Well, that's not the case. Ozone is very reactive. It's very poisonous. If you would breathe in a bunch of oxygen, it would probably damage your lungs quite severely. But in the atmosphere, it does a great job of blocking ultraviolet radiation. That's why they were worried about these holes in the ozone layer. If the ozone would disappear, we wouldn't have that protection, and we would have many more issues with, with uh, sun exposure. But the ozone, which is toxic here on the Earth's surface, is perfect up there, high in the atmosphere, up in the stratosphere, I believe. Um, and it's just a very small amount, very, very little ozone, but there's enough there to protect us. And I talked about all these different types of radiation that the sun gives off. So we have visible light, which we need, infrared, ultraviolet, and there's some others as well. Um, the, much of the atmosphere helps to block a lot of those dangerous or more dangerous types of radiation. We get the visible light that we need, but we don't get those, that dangerous, dangerous radiation. A little bit of the ultraviolet comes through, but the really dangerous ultraviolet is blocked by the atmosphere. <clears throat> Another thing that the atmosphere does is it holds in heat. So I've been talking about heat a lot, but it's very important. Um, our, our bodies can only operate at a certain temperature. If it gets too cold, we simply can't survive. Other organisms can't survive if it's too hot. Um, our cells just start breaking down. It doesn't work. So having the right temperature is really important. Um, right now, one of the things that astronomers are doing are looking at are uh, looking for planets around other stars outside our solar system. They're called exoplanets. And there's two things that they usually look for. They look to see whether uh, the planet is in the Goldilocks zone. So it's, it's orbiting around its parent star at the right distance. And also looks for water in its atmosphere. Those are the two things they look for. And we need an atmosphere to hold in heat. So um, we have our atmosphere, of course, but you have the moon. The moon, which is our nearest neighbor, has no atmosphere whatsoever. Um, and it is on the, on the sunlit side of the moon, it gets up to above the boiling point of water, like 200 and some degrees, I believe. On the back side of the moon, where it's not getting any sun, uh, it gets down to like negative 100 or so degrees Fahrenheit. So there's a huge swing in temperature uh, without the atmosphere. And we even experience this a little bit ourselves. You can almost always tell when it's going to be a really cold night because you go out that evening and there's no clouds. Those clouds help to hold in the heat. If there's clouds, it holds the heat in. It doesn't get as cold. That's what the atmosphere does for us. Um, Mars, like I said earlier, doesn't have an atmosphere. And for that reason, there's much greater swings in temperature. It's much colder on Mars I believe that Mars is maybe on the very, very outer edge of the Goldilocks zone, depending on what you look at there. Um, another reason that the atmosphere is important is it helps to protect us from meteorites. You've probably, some of you have looked through binoculars or a telescope at the moon, and the first thing you'll notice is the craters. There are craters everywhere on the moon. Um, and there are a few craters on the Earth, but there's not that many. But... What happens is whenever a piece, uh, a piece of rock or metal or dust hits the Earth's atmosphere, it burns up. 
And so that helps to protect us from these, these, these large meteorites or the small micrometeorites. But the moon does not have that. So there again, another benefit of the atmosphere. Another benefit of the atmosphere is pressure. You know, um, on, at sea level, it's about 14.7 pounds per square inch, um, which seems like quite a lot, but we're used to it, so we don't think about it. And what that does is that helps to keep water from boiling. One thing that's fascinating, I was reading one time that they were doing some um, tests back in the 1960s on pressure suits for astronauts and uh, pilots, and they had this man in a in a test chamber, like a vacuum chamber, they were pumping all the air out to see how well his suit held. Well, his suit had a hole in it, and he passed out. Um, so they had to pump the air back in and, and revive him, and, and he was fine. But he said the last thing he remembers before he passed out was water boiling on his tongue. Uh, with the lack of pressure, the, the water can turn straight into a vapor very quickly. Now, his water, uh, the water in his body wasn't 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, the, the boiling point of water at, at sea level is 212 degrees Fahrenheit, but if you reduce pressure, the boiling point of water can be at body temperature. So that's an important thing of um, important thing about the atmosphere. Okay, I need to move on here. So another thing that's important is the moon. We think about the moon as the light during the night. But there are some very important things that it does. There are two main things that it does. Um, one that we're probably all familiar with is the tides. If you've ever been to the ocean, you'll see the water going out and coming back in. The reason that's important is it, it helps to stir the ocean. If it wouldn't be for that, it would become much more stagnant, especially in some areas. It helps to circulate oxygen and nutrients throughout the ocean so living things can, can thrive in the ocean. But the one thing we don't often think about is it keeps the Earth from wobbling on its axis. So the Earth has got a tilt of about 23 and a half degrees, which causes its seasons. And if there was not the moon, the moon is very large in comparison to uh, the Earth. If you look at Jupiter, Saturn, other planets that have moons, their moons are much, much smaller. But the moon is relatively large compared to the Earth. And what it does is the, the gravitational pull from the moon helps to keep that tilt very consistent. They've calculated that if it would not be for the moon, that that tilt would change over, over the course of hundreds, thousands of years. But that tilt would change a lot more, and that would drastically alter our seasons and, of course, the survivability of being able to live on the Earth. <clears throat> Moving on to the sun. So we've talked about how that we're the right distance from the sun, but let's look at the sun itself. The sun is a somewhat unique star, and it's also not really a unique star. There are a lot of stars that are much bigger than the sun. It's really not that large when you compare it to other stars. For instance, Betelgeuse, which is in the constellation Orion, I believe it would, if you would place it in the solar system, it would go about out to the orbit of Mars approximately as far as size. I think that's maybe right, roughly. Um, so it's not that big, but there are some things that make it unique. The, one of the reasons is that the sun's energy output remains remarkably consistent. A lot of stars are, um, they, they get much brighter and then they get dim and then they get bright and they get dim. They go through these cycles. That's just how they're made. But the sun has a very consistent output of energy, which there again is important for 
life to survive. <clears throat> and I'm not sure how many of you saw the partial lunar eclipse the other week. I guess that was last week, week before. Um, but back in 2017, I went to Kentucky. Uh, my wife and I went to Kentucky, and we saw the total lunar, uh, the total solar eclipse, rather, there in Kentucky. And that was it was an incredible experience. Um, I'm not sure if it was worth the traffic on the way back or not, but it was it was incredible. I'm not sure. I think some of you all saw it as well. Um, so. The moon is about exactly 400 times smaller than the sun. It's also 400 times closer than the sun. And because of that, at certain times, when, when all the orbits line up just perfectly, the moon goes directly in front of the sun and blocks out all of its light. Um, and, you know, what does that prove? It doesn't really... Uh, doesn't really prove anything about the anthropic principle. It doesn't make life better on earth. But to me, it's just a, a sign of God's creativity, his majesty. And there's another solar eclipse coming up next year in April, I believe. And if you could have a chance, I would highly recommend you go check it out. Um, I was trying to explain it to somebody one time, and I said, uh, like a lot of times, you, you know, the sun is there, but it's too bright, so you don't look at it. Um, and, and so it's, just, it's kind of always there, but you don't really pay much attention to it. It's just that ever-present thing. But during, this, during the solar eclipse, when the moon went in front of the sun, I could look at it without anything protecting my eyes. I could see the corona, um, these wisps of gas in its outer atmosphere. Absolutely beautiful. Um, and it's like all of a sudden I felt like I was on a planet orbiting a sun. Um, I never thought before it was a unique experience. Okay, let's move on to the next section here. I have a few more things to talk about. And I want to start at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. So, what do we see in these verses? Well, the first thing we see is God said, let there be light. What is light? Well, light is energy. It's pure energy. And one thing that's fascinating, once you start learning about, um, learning about physics and energy and matter, you realize that matter is basically uh, energy that has been condensed into solid form. Uh, you can take matter, you can turn it into energy, you can take energy, you can turn it into matter. And so that let there be light was creating all that energy, all that matter, all at one time. He was creating it from nothing. There is actually a law in science called the law of conservation of mass energy. What that means is that you cannot create matter or energy, you cannot destroy matter or energy. The amount of matter or energy in the universe stays consistent over time. But somehow we have, you know, scientists have never found an exception to this rule. There is no way that we can create matter or energy. We can change them back and forth, but we cannot create them. But somehow, and we've never seen an exception to this rule, but somehow we are on uh, we're in a universe that is filled with matter and energy. And so it makes much more sense that 
something or somebody outside of the world of this material creation made everything that we can see. That's what makes sense. Um, some of you all probably heard about the Big Bang Theory. And you'll be interested to know that I believe in the Big Bang Theory, but I'll explain what I mean by that. Sorry, that's not a uh, very <clears throat> precarious position there. Okay, um, so we've heard about the Big Bang Theory, and it's a theory that people that don't believe in God, that's, that's what they use to explain how the universe was created. But before the Big Bang Theory was developed, many astronomers believed that the universe had always existed. It always existed, and that's just how things were. But then in the early 1900s, Edwin Hubble... It's who the Hubble Space Telescope is named after. He noticed that there were galaxies that were moving away from us. He had this big telescope, and he noticed that these galaxies were moving away from us very quickly. And he looked in all directions and saw that galaxies were just moving away from us in every direction. And so if that's the case, that means that they must have at one point been at one spot. So they started, coming, they started talking about this, coming up with ideas, and they realized that this implied that all the matter and energy in the universe at one point was at one location, at one spot. And one of the astronomers who still believed that the universe had always existed was kind of making fun of this idea. And he called it, that's just the Big Bang Theory. There's this Big Bang and everything created. It's, you know, it's just ridiculous. And so that's where the, the term, the Big Bang Theory, came from, from this astronomer who was, in a sense, kind of making a joke so that name kind of stuck, and that's what we have today. Part of the resistance to that Big Bang Theory was because it was so close to the creation account in the Bible. Remember I said, um, God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's an explosion. That's a bang. Um, everything just popped into existence right away. And so that's why I believe in the Big Bang Theory. Now, they would say that the Big Bang Theory happened spontaneously. There was no cause for the Big Bang Theory. It just, there was nothing, and then all of a sudden there was everything. I don't believe that, but I do believe that there was a point in time where all the matter and energy popped into existence, but the cause was God. That's the difference. <clears throat> so eventually, the Big Bang Theory was accepted because there was no other, you couldn't argue against the evidence. The evidence said if you, if you kind of rewind the tape and go back, everything was at one point. And so they, they had to go with the evidence, even though they didn't really want to go with that. <clears throat> so back to the anthropic principle. Um, Stephen Hawking, who some of you have maybe heard of, he's an astrophysicist. Um, he was not a Christian, as far as I know. He said that if the Big Bang had expanded faster or slower by only one part in a hundred billion, then life would not have been possible. So I find that kind of interesting. Um, so that expansion of the universe that we see, if it would have been just a little bit slower or a little bit faster, life would not have been possible. <clears throat> so in conclusion, all these things point toward a designer. What makes sense that all these things, the water molecules designed just perfectly, Earth is at the right distance, it has a magnetic field, it has an atmosphere, um, the sun is just at the right spot, it's the right type of star, um, the fact that we can see galaxies expanding that points toward there being a point of creation, what makes sense that these things happened by chance or that it was 
designed, it was done with intention by a creator. <clears throat> so, um, just a few comments here. Um, so, although all these things point toward a creator, they do not prove there is a God. Now, I want to be careful when I say this, because I've said this before, and I've had people come and talk to me afterwards and say, what do you mean by that? So, um, proof is very, like when you prove something, there is no other way to argue it. That's just how it is. These things don't prove there's a creator, but they point toward a creator. There's a difference. That's something to keep in mind. When it comes down to it, um, what do we base our faith in, a, faith in God and in Jesus Christ on? It shouldn't be on the evidence or what a scientist says or what a creation scientist says. It should be on the scriptures. Um, it should be on our personal experience with Jesus. But like I mentioned earlier, we do sometimes have doubts, and there's people we talk to that might have doubts. And so I think it is useful to know these things so that when we do get questions, we have questions ourselves, we have some place to go to help us realize that we don't have blind faith, that there is a reason, uh, there are things that point toward a creator, and what makes sense? Is it that things happen by themselves or that there was a creator? To me, that there's a creator is what makes much more sense. Greetings in the name of Jesus, the one by whom all things were made. In a little bit, we'll be looking at Psalm 8, if you would like to turn there. In the evening sky is the planet Jupiter, visible as a bright star in the east. And that light that we see when we look at Jupiter is actually sunlight. The sun is so bright, it gives off this light. It goes all the way out to Jupiter, reflects off of Jupiter, and then back to our eyes. And the width of Jupiter is over 11 times the width of the Earth, and the mass of Jupiter is over 300 times the mass of the Earth. And although Jupiter is large, uh, the sun is much larger. It's over 1,000 times more massive than Jupiter. Now, there's stars much larger than the sun. But the sun is a, a quite large object out there, much larger than us. And it puts out around 380 trillion trillion watts. However, there are stars out there that put out way more light than the sun. Uh, the brightest star in the feet of Orion uh, puts out is around 40,000 or 50,000 times brighter uh, than the sun. And it doesn't look that bright uh, since it's so far away. And as we consider the impressive objects in the universe, these words in, in Psalm 8 should make an impression upon us. We'll start at verse 3, Psalm 8, 3. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. You know, as we think about the amazing characteristics of what God has made, uh, we should be impressed uh, with the Creator. Sometimes people get impressed with themselves for figuring things out, but instead we should be impressed with the Creator who made it, and we should be impressed that the Creator made us so that we are able, in part, 
to understand what he has made. Look at verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Now, as we look at the world around us, there are a number of things that we should keep in mind. I'll just mention four of them. Number one, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. That's from Exodus 20.11. So he did this in six days. And then he rested the seventh day, and then our, our week is based upon that creation rest cycle. Number two, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's from Genesis 1.31. Number three, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. That's from Romans 5.12. Number four, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, as we look at the world around us, there's a lot of evidence for the flood, but I'm not going to talk about that. And also, as we look around us, there's a lot of evidence for sin, and I'm not going to focus on that either. I'm going to instead focus on the fact that there's a lot of evidence that the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is, and that what he made was very good. Now, let's think a little more about the planet Jupiter. It doesn't stay at one spot in the sky. It moves, and the path it takes through the sky, it takes about 12 years for it to, to journey. Now, ancient peoples noticed various objects that moved through the sky, various stars, and they called these wandering stars. Uh, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn were the wandering stars that the ancient peoples observed. And they were puzzled by the motions of these stars. You know, as Jupiter moves through the sky, it sometimes moves backwards for a while. And so what's going on? You know, man was created in the image of God, and we have within us a sense that there is order in the universe. And so people tried to explain the motions of these wandering stars. One idea was that everything orbited around the Earth. And by introducing complexities in that idea, they were able to make fairly accurate predictions, uh, but that idea was not perfect. Uh, when Galileo looked at Jupiter uh, with, by not, with a telescope, he saw stars next to it. And then he looked at it another night, and the stars moved back and forth relative to Jupiter. And as he kept, continued to observe, as Jupiter moved through the sky, the stars stayed with Jupiter. But they were moving back and forth relative to Jupiter. And so since these stars stayed with Jupiter, they must be moons that go around Jupiter. Just as the Earth has a moon, uh, these star, the, uh, the, just as the Earth has a moon, Jupiter has moons. And there's four of them that are bright enough that you can see with binoculars under the right circumstances. And so the motions of these moons showed that it's not right that everything goes around the Earth. And so those observations as well as others uh, showed that this idea that everything went around the Earth just was not correct. And they tried to explain the motion of objects around the sun by using circles, but that didn't work very well. And then one man studied uh, the planet Mars very carefully. And through his careful studies, he concluded that Mars traveled a path uh, that the Greeks had studied many years before, 
uh, a curve called an ellipse. And so each planet uh, travels around the sun in a path that is very close to an ellipse. There is mathematical order in the motions of the wandering stars. And so the universe is orderly. That orderly orderliness is not always obvious. We may need to do some searching uh, to see that orderliness. Now, certain people who haven't accepted the plain teaching of the Bible have puzzled over the fact that there is order in the universe and that we're able to understand that orderliness. One scientist wrote, the enormous usefulness of mathematics in the natural sciences is something bordering on the mysterious. You know, the mathematical orderliness in the universe was a puzzle to him. He also wrote, it is not at all natural that laws of nature exist, much less that man is able to discover them. And so he, he was puzzled by these things. But since the Lord is a God of order, it should make perfect sense to us that laws of nature exist. And since God created the universe and created man who lives in that universe, man is able to understand in part what God has made. Uh, that scientist, he wrote this also, the miracle of the appropriateness of the language of mathematics for the formulation of the laws of physics is a wonderful gift. Yes, it is a wonderful gift. Our ability to understand what God has made is a gift that has been given to us by the Creator. And for those of us who, under, who believe what the Bible says, it makes perfect sense that we're able to understand in part what God has made. You know, the moons of Jupiter move in such an orderly way that they have been used as a clock. Uh, and back before quality clocks and watches were developed that could uh, keep good time on a rocking boat, uh, people had difficulty figuring out where they were, how far east or west they had traveled when they traveled by boat. And they learned to take along a telescope. And when they'd get to land, they could pull out the telescope and look at the moons of Jupiter. And they had brought along information with them what those moons should be doing at certain times according to clocks in their homeland. And then, by studying the moons of Jupiter, they could figure out what time it was at home, and they could study the stars and the sun to figure out what local time was, and then they could determine how far east or west they had traveled. And by looking at the North Star or other stars, they could determine how far north or south they had traveled. And so we see the goodness of God and how he created these celestial bodies that helped people to figure out where they were on the earth. So our creator is a God of order. You know, and we've been considering some large things, the Jupiter and the sun, and those things point us to the creator. And there's a lot of small things that point us to the creator as well. Uh, for example, uh, we have a lot of muscles in our bodies, and these muscles have fibers in them, tiny fibers, and there's tiny fingers on one kind of fiber reach out and attach to another kind of fiber and pull, and that makes our muscles work. They convert chemical energy into mechanical energy. And so they're a type of motor. And there's also another small type of motor uh, in our cells, like our nerve cells can be, be extremely long. And when a chemical is made in one portion of the cell and needs to be transported to another portion of the cell, well, how does that happen? Well, there's these tiny machines that have little feet and they walk along little cables, in a sense, that are in the cell, the little tubes, to transport cargo from one part of the cell to the other. And then there's another type of motor within us. Uh, it's a spinning electric motor. 
This is a very tiny motor. Um, the distance your fingernail grows in 10 seconds is the approximate width of this motor. And the purpose of this motor is to recycle a special chemical that is used in our bodies. And when that chemical is used, this motor can be used to very rapidly recycle that chemical so it can again be used. And so these miniature motors point to a creator. So that design is obvious if we're willing to see it. Uh, one man who helped us discover the structure of DNA wrote these words, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Uh, thankfully, we don't have to travel down that path. We don't try to, need to try to convince ourselves that electric motors are not designed. Uh, we can accept the obvious truth. Now, when we observe people who don't accept what is obvious, uh, we may be tempted to think ourselves superior to them, to look down upon them, but let's take that as a warning for ourselves. You know, as we read the Bible, do we ever come to a passage of Scripture that we don't want to accept? Are we willing to accept obvious truth? Over 100 years ago, John Wayland, a teacher from this area, wrote a book with the title, Christ as a Teacher. And in this book he wrote, the things we do not wish to believe are always hard to understand. Now that might be an exaggeration, but it points out a weakness in our fallen human nature. We can do a good job of convincing ourselves that the truth is hard to understand. Now DNA is an amazing substance. It contains lots of information. It contains instructions for making many different things. It contains instructions for making proteins. It contains instructions for making the motors that I was talking about. And then these instructions need to be copied as cells divide. The new cells need to be able to make these motors. And so God created copying machines. Now they don't work like Xerox machines, but they do a really good job of copying the information on DNA. It's very rare for these machines to make a mistake, and if they do, there are repair machines that uh, correct mistakes most of the time. Again, we live in a fallen world, and so not all mistakes get corrected. But it has been estimated that the copying machines and the repair machines working together uh, are able to make a copy that is accurate 99.9999999% of the time. One secular textbook says this, given the demands for accuracy during DNA replication and the lengths to which cells go to achieve this precision, it is not surprising that cells have also evolved elaborate protein machines to scan the finished product for mistakes. In contrast to such a view, supernatural creation of these elaborate protein machines makes sense. You know, in the beginning, God created these machines in living organisms, and he created uh, copying machines in these living organisms so that they can make copies of the information that is used to make these machines so that today our bodies are making these machines even if we aren't mechanics. But one of the amazing features of DNA is that it packs a lot of information into just a little bit of space. 
Uh, most of the cells in our body contains DNA from both of our biological parents, and most of this DNA is stored in a tiny ball called the nucleus, and the nucleus is so small, smaller than a grain of sand, uh, normally our eyes would not be able to see something that small. And if all the DNA in the nucleus were put into a single strand and stretched out, it would be a strand over six feet long. And somehow, that thin strand is packed in, all that DNA is packed into a tiny nucleus. And that very wise design of compact information storage appoints us to the creator of that information. Theoretically, the DNA in the nucleus of a human cell could store over a gigabyte of information. That is more than a billion bytes. And all this information is in a tiny ball smaller than a grain of sand. One article says that DNA's simple and elegant structure seems to be the work of an accomplished sculptor. And then that article goes on to say, it is the result of random chemical reactions in a simmering primordial stew. In contrast to such thinking, a supernatural creation uh, makes perfect sense. And so let's remember that in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. And let's remember that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And when we look at creation, we may have some questions. You know, we see Jupiter out there, and it takes sunlight a while to get out to Jupiter and then to come back to us. And we see these stars out there. How did that light from those stars ever get to us, we may wonder. And let's think a little bit about in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were grumbling against Moses and Aaron, and God had them put some rods inside the tabernacle, or inside of a meeting place. I think they had the tabernacle at that time. And Aaron's rod, overnight, it budded and blossomed. Obviously, a miracle occurred. And so we may not understand how that happened, but we know it happened. And when God created Adam and Eve on the sixth day, somehow, I believe, that night, the distant stars that he had made. And we don't know how that happened, but we know it happened. Uh, there are stars out there that are just in galaxies that are extreme distances. And will we accept the plain teaching of the word of God? You know, as we study the scripture, as we study the genealogies in the scripture, it becomes very clear that the universe was created less than 10,000 years ago, and it was probably around 6,000 years ago that God created in six days. It's very plain from Scripture that God created in six days. And so we can see these distant things he made. We may not understand how he made it. It's obviously a miracle. The creation of the universe had to be a miracle. According to the laws of science, uh, you know, man is able at times to create matter. He is able to take energy and turn it into matter. But when man does that, he also makes something called antimatter. And matter and antimatter don't get along. When they meet, they annihilate each other. And so these people who believe in a naturalistic origin of the universe, they have a difficult time of understanding why is it that the universe has matter in it and not antimatter. So clearly, creation makes sense. The laws of science point to the fact that the origin of the universe was supernatural. 
It did not follow the modern laws of science. God made the laws of science, and that's what we go by today. But something supernatural happened at the beginning. So creation makes sense. It points to the creator. And now it's your turn. You know, when you go out, you can look at trees, acorns, squirrels. You can consider your hands. You can consider your eyes. You can consider birds and bees and plants. You can consider fruits like grapes and strawberries and watermelons and apples. You know, these things, as we look at them, point to the creator. So whether we look at large things or small things or things in between, these things point to our creator. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth.